This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, where professional readers give voice to articles from Canada's best general interest magazine. I'm your host, Roger Ashby. In his new short story collection, Instructions for the Drowning, the late author Stephen Hyten invites readers to sit with their fears. Lori Wilson reads The Deep End. This is a book review titled The Deep End by Elizabeth DeMariafi. In the title story of Instructions for the Drowning, Stephen Hyten's newest collection of short fiction, a man dives off a dock to save his wife, who has begun to flounder in the deep water of a cottage-ringed lake. Her panic slices violently through a languid day. But when he reaches her, the husband finds his wife's will to survive is just as violent, and he remembers his own father's advice, to avoid being dragged under by a drowning swimmer. There is only one way to save both yourself and the victim. Knock them out cold. The narrator actually recalls the father's instructions delivered in a more pointed way. Quote, If you ever jumped into the water to help a drowning man, he would try to pull you down with him. It's the, quote, try to we keep returning to as we witness not only a near drowning, but also the husband's alarm that his wife would kill him to save herself. The marriage's many disappointments bob to the surface as the couple swing their fists, both trying to stay afloat. Every man in Instructions for the Drowning seems, in a way, to be drowning. Written, or at least originally published, between 2007 and 2022, the stories deal almost entirely with the inner lives of men. Women appear on the periphery as wives and daughters, but the real confrontations happen between father and son, doctor and patient, with strangers who appear and disappear with equal levels of threat, or with the man residing inside a character. It is a determinedly midlife book, one shaken and stirred by self-reckoning. Published posthumously, it is also Hyten's last. Born in 1961, he died of cancer in the spring of last year at the age of 60. By his own midlife, Hyten had become a writer's writer. Annie Prue, of the Shipping News and Brokeback Mountain fame, blurbed one of his books. But he was also assuredly a reader's writer. From the appearance of his first book of poems, the award-winning Stalin's Carnival, in 1989, through to his first album of songs, The Devil's Share, released just a year before his death, it's hard to think of a genre he did not touch. He was a poet, novelist, essayist, memoirist, songwriter, and short story writer. But more than his impressive publication history, it is Hyten's pressing engagement with the human experience that feels compelling. Quote, Canada's most romantic novelist, the critic Donna Bailey Nurse called him, referring not to any lovelorn storylines, but rather his, quote, capital R romantic obsession with the individual and imagination, with nature and our place in it. In the poem, quote, A Cosmos, from his collection The Waking Comes Late, a father and daughter wade into the sea at night. The daughter is fearless, the father anxious to hold her hand. Even in that moment of wonder, he is beset by the idea of losing her, or losing himself, or just of death, as he looks, quote, beyond the coastal, shelf of the familial, to a solo unmooring, all ties, all selves. Hyten cut an effortlessly cool figure, the sideburns, the leather jacket, 
the rakish yet dreamy stare. But if his writing is any indication, that coolness hid a raw powerlessness, dread of the, quote, solo unmooring. In a memorial address for the Ontario poet Al Purdy, Hyten said, quote, Male writers are driven primarily by a fear and hatred of morality. Those feelings are stitched minutely and deeply into the cloth of these new stories. But there's something else here, too. A sense not just of survival, lungs gasping for air, but of reaching out for connection, of grasping on and holding tight. We won't know what Hyten's work would have looked like at 68 or 77. We will never see how his stories might have changed in later life. However truthful the anxiety in this collection might feel, one can't help but chafe against the possibility his legacy might now be forever defined by such themes. In Instructions for the Drowning, however, he uses his poet's precision, his depth as a novelist, and his intimacy as a memoirist to give us a glimpse of the closure he may have hoped for, for himself, for his characters, and also for his readers. In 2015, Hyten traveled to the Greek island of Lesvos. It was a snap decision. He wanted to see the refugee crisis up close, feeling some responsibility or duty to do so. He arrived with little knowledge of the language, and even less training, and found himself, according to his publisher, quote, thrown into emergency roles for which he was woefully unqualified. The experience inspired a 2020 memoir, Reaching Mithimna, but a similar existential helplessness rolls throughout Instructions for the Drowning. The men in these stories are consumed with their place in a society that no longer feels built to fit them, and this leaves them looking for ways to control outcomes, and sometimes death. Questions appear surface level. Will she keep loving me? But really come down to the big midlife questions. Am I enough? Have I been enough? The words, quote, masculine duty appear twice. Once in reference to the father, who imparts the stern instructions for saving a drowning man. And another time in reference to a car salesman, who, after a mundane test drive, turns dark when the protagonist's daughter discovers a suicide, calmly persists. Quote, he leans down and, as if gently reminding you of the masculine duty to push on with life's errands in the face of misfortune, murmurs, Dare I ask, Nick, if you've made the decision about the Camry? In his review of Hyten's 2012 collection of short stories, The Dead Are More Visible, for the Toronto Star, critic and editor Alex Good signaled the recurring intrusion of, quote, dangerous figures into an otherwise placid everyday reality. Here, too, the banal is continually interrupted by the dangerous, the surprising, the threat of the other. But that, quote, other generally comes in the form of another man. In, quote, expecting, it's a stranger. Leo Losco, former bullied child, finds his anxiety ramping up even as his life becomes happier. When his much-loved pregnant wife discovers a lost wallet and passport, Losco, desperate to please her, sets about trying to return the items to their owner. But the owner's bizarre responses and delays trigger a defensive reaction in Losco. We are not entirely sure until the end who poses the greater threat to whom. In, quote, repeat to failure, it is the protagonist's own insecurity that results in harm. 
Following his fit, slightly older new girlfriend to the gym, he fixates on lifting weights, wrongly. About to be crushed by the sliding bar, he is forced to choose between, quote, mangling his face or certain death at the bench press. All this while the mocking sound of laughter repeats on a TV overhead. Then there are the suicides, six in total, one mistaken, four attempted, and one successfully achieved. In a book of only 11 stories, it seems a notable number, but each one is held up to the light, its impact individual and its meaning morally different from that of the others. In, quote, Notes Toward a New Theory of Tears, Heighton dives into the real trauma that caregivers swallow when treating survivors of violence. But its protagonist, an army therapist who can initially imagine only death as an escape from the nightmares he has inherited from his patient, manages to recast the dreams themselves. Yes, a frightening, harmful thing has invaded his life. He uses the harmful thing to heal. In instructions, Heighton seems to ask something similar of the reader to sit with the discomfort in these stories, to stare into this most human experience of fear and wait for what it brings us. The final story provides a kind of payoff. Quote, The Stages of J. Gordon Whitehead is a masterclass in intertwining multi-genre talents. The story, an imagined account of the subsequent life of the eponymous Montreal student who may have contributed to Harry Houdini's death, is so flawlessly told that I googled several characters, expecting them to be real. The young reporter who witnesses the assault in a backstage dressing room. That bit is true. Whitehead wanted to test Houdini's strength by punching him in the stomach, but did not wait for him to prepare. The blows are thought to have ruptured Houdini's appendix, and he died days later in a Detroit hospital. Or the traveling preacher who takes Whitehead on as a protege. Quote, The Stages of J. Gordon Whitehead is a tale about cowardice and redemption. The son of an Anglican minister, Whitehead is a young Christian man, offended by Houdini's yoking together of the spiritualism he made a career of debunking and the gospel truth. He is, Hyten tells us, quote, one of God's enforcers. And the strange assault on Houdini, reclined on the couch with a broken ankle, feels like a childish temper tantrum, fueled again by fear. Hyten writes a whitehead who escapes to the United States, where time after time, his peace is broken when locals discover the terrible secret of his crime, until he lands in a preacher's tent. There, he tells his story of Christian redemption to the salivating crowd, and the preacher is smart enough to know a good investment when he sees one. They go into partnership, and eventually the student exceeds the master. Whitehead leaves the preacher behind. Inevitably, that young Montreal reporter finally catches up to him, determined to reveal him as a fraud. While every good story has a turn, a place where the reader is blindsided and the narrative moves off in a new direction, the stories and instructions all turn as sharply as sonnets. Any poet enjoys constraint, but Hyten is also a formalist and is formal in his unpredictability, especially here. Because in the final turn, in The Stages of J. Gordon Whitehead, it is not the appearance of the reporter, it is the appearance of Hyten himself the writer. In the epilogue scene, Hyten suddenly swaps genres. 
We leave the story and its setting behind and instead find ourselves in a memoir. A first-person narrator, who we assume to be Hyten, recalls his experience walking up a mountain trail in Kathmandu. There, he encounters a, quote, very large old man, whom he now imagines as an aged whitehead, escaped from America and reinventing himself yet again. Whitehead has moved past the fear that drove him and now comes down the mountain with a new serenity in his deep-set eyes. Hyten describes the sacred mountain trail, telling us it was covered in pastel-colored tissue prayer sheets. Quote, I was walking on blessings, he says. But in this version of his memory, he does not stop to interrogate the man who might be Whitehead. Instead, he takes readers by the hand and impatiently continues up the trail. It's an uplifting end to the book, and it would be moving to think that it was one of the last things Hyten wrote, a coda. But, in fact, The Stages of J. Gordon Whitehead was originally published back in 2007, making it the oldest story in the collection. That knowledge changes things. The ending becomes a surprise, a wink. Not so much for the steadying touch it seems to provide, but rather for the memory of a younger Hyten, writing in turn about a still younger self, fearless and impetuous, and still eager to reach the peak. That was a book review titled The Deep End by Elizabeth DeMariaffi. I'm Lori Wilson. You've been listening to Voices of the Walrus on AMI-audio, produced by Don Dickinson, audio engineering by Bill Shackleton and Jacob Shemansky. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank, and I'm your host, Roger Ashby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating and review, and subscribe for more. I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.